We continue in our study in Ephesians. If you don't have a Bible, you will find the sermon text in your sermon guide in your order of worship. The passage today comes from Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes." Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. I remember years ago watching a children's egg hunt around Easter. And there were a bunch of kids that were lined up and facing this field that was full of multicolored treasures. And in these treasures, in these little eggs, were little morsels of candy. And so we had, I watched, there were adults that were kind of standing in front, arm to arm, holding these kids back. It wasn't time yet to go find the eggs, but they could see them. And they're leaning forward and the adults are holding them back. And the kids had a twinkle in their eye and they were twitching and their mouths were watering because out here in the field was the treasure of all treasures, chocolate candy in these little eggs. And then the adults finally, when the time came, raised their arms and these kids were shot out of a cannon into this field collecting their eggs. They were eager And that's probably an understatement. They were eager to go find those eggs. Now, why do I start off and give you that visual? Because in in verse three of chapter four, Paul urges these believers in Ephesus to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. To be eager for unity. And word eager, it means to be zealous for The picture I just gave you of the children before the egg hunt is a beautiful picture of what it means to be eager. And yet Paul says, are we eager for unity like that? You see, he's dealing with a church in Ephesus that is, uh, it's a blended family. It's Jews and Gentiles. We learned in in chapter two, Jews and Gentiles who, who hated each other. This 
uh, history of animosity are now one in Christ with no division, no hostility. And they're learning how to, how to live together. Now, easy on paper, hard in practice when we talk about unity. So Paul's making this shift in Ephesians, right? From the first three chapters, uh, which are the indicative. And what that means is that it's all about what God has done for us. And now in chapter four, he shifts to say, okay, now in light of all of that, how are we to live? The imperative. And you're gonna see now that we get into, in light of all of that, this is how we should live. The first place Paul goes in talking about how we should live is unity, is unity. You know, I think we all would agree that you don't have to work hard to seek disunity or division. That your heart, my heart, very naturally goes to questioning people, questioning motives. That your heart naturally goes to maybe writing people off or your heart naturally goes to maybe ignoring people because they're just hard to deal with. That, that we don't, it doesn't take effort to go there. See, the natural default of the human heart is not unity, a moving towards others. And so the question becomes, how do we, how, how can we be eager, eager to seek unity? And we're gonna look at the what, the how, and the why of unity in this passage. The what, the source and definition of unity, the how, the call to unity, and the why, the goal of unity. So let's start with the what of unity, the source of unity, verses four to six. You'll notice in those verses that Paul describes the life of the Trinity. He says, one spirit, referring to the Holy Spirit, one Lord, referring to Jesus Christ, and one Father, referring to God the Father. And so he's, he's describing Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it's interesting that that's where he starts his discussion on unity, is this picture of the Godhead, this picture of three persons, one God, but three persons who are in absolute unity and harmony. The scriptures teach that each person of the Trinity gives towards the other, honors the other, glorifies the other. It's this picture of other-centeredness. It's amazing. And what we see in the Trinity is that it's not only unity and harmony, but it is playing a role towards a greater good. Can you just, I want you to use your imaginations for a second. I want you to, to go with me to, to the possible discussion that happened in the Trinity. When God was trying to figure out or plan how he was going to rescue his world. Just imagine the conversation. God the Father says to the Son and Spirit, we've got a problem. That beautiful world that we created, those people that we created good, they, they've made some poor decisions. They've made a mess of things. It's chaos down there. It's, it's a wreck. And we need to go rescue. Son, I'm going to send you to rescue them. And it's going to be hard. It's going to be costly. In fact, son, it's going to cost you your life. Spirit, when the son gets tired and weary of his mission, would you strengthen him? And son, when you're done, when you have died for them, when you've paid that, you're gonna come back and sit next to me. And then, and then spirit, 
I'm gonna send you and and you're gonna actually go live in the people that he rescued so you can strengthen them to, to live how I've always wanted them to live. You ready? And they say, yes, dad. Yes, let's do it. No bickering, no whining, no complaining, no bargaining to trade roles. Just absolute unity and harmony to accomplish salvation. Kim and I were at a friend's house, this was years ago, for dinner. And this couple had a handful of children. And we ate dinner, and when we were done, they said, uh, go ahead and just move from the dining table into the den. So we, we moved into the den, and, and we could still see the kitchen and the dining room table because it was an open floor plan. And what we watched in the next five to 10 minutes was remarkable. The younger son started clearing the table and bringing the plates over to the kitchen sink. The daughters were at the sink washing the dishes by hand and drying the dishes. The uh, mom and dad were packing up the extra food and putting it in the fridge. And, and when the son got done clearing the table, he went into the kitchen, he pulled out the trash bag and he tied it off and he went to the garage and he threw it away. While he did that, the, the, the father took a broom and started cleaning under the table and sweeping under the table. And then the son came back from the garage and immediately helped his mom put the dishes away that were dry while the young daughters uh, still continued to wash. And this was done without any instruction. No instruction. Now, they were talking to each other. They were laughing and they were enjoying one another. But they were absolutely unified to complete this task. And I give you that picture because it gives us, along with what I just described to the Trinity, a picture of what unity is, of defining unity. You see, unity is not just absence of conflict. This family I just described, was there absence of conflict? Of course there was. Was that why we were struck by unity? No. We're struck by unity because they were working in harmony towards a greater good. That's what unity is. It's not just absence of conflict. It's working in harmony towards a common goal. We see it throughout this passage. Verse 12, building up the body of Christ. Verse 13, that common goal is described as attaining to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Verse 15 is described as growing up into Christ who is the head. Verse 16 described as making the body grow. Now, we're gonna get into the goal in more depth later, but what I want you to see is that unity is not just absence of conflict. It's not just getting along. It's working in harmony towards a greater goal. One of the reasons that marriages struggle is because of a wrong or insufficient definition of unity. If in in a marriage, unity is defined as absence of conflict, that marriage will struggle mightily to experience unity. And let me give you an example. Uh, My friend, who pastored um, in a previous place at a very large church was in charge of the young marriage community. And so he did premarital counseling, but he did a ton of postmarital counseling in the year or two following marriage. And here was the common source of conflict that walked into his office. These couples would walk in with disunity, with problems, and the common source of conflict was their inability to choose which movie they were going to see on Friday night. Now you chuckle, but that really was, or some variation of that, where they were going to go to dinner, that that was the source of their conflict. 
Now, the solution to that, those marriages that were struggling in that way was not better practices on how to figure out if they were going to go see a romantic comedy or a, you know, adventure movie or Chinese or Italian for dinner. That's not the solution. The solution was, and the solution they needed was a transcendent cause to which their marriage was pointed towards. Something bigger, a common goal that they could fix their eyes on. The reality was they were bored. They were bored. And they were tired of staring at each other with nothing more to figure out than what movie are we going to see on Friday night? They were, they didn't know it, but they were itching for a transcendent cause. Some common goal to which they could work. That was their solution because that's what unity is. You maintain unity by working in harmony towards the transcendent mission of God. When you become a Christian, the life of the Trinity is birthed into you. And you then are to grow up into the mission of the Trinity, the harmony of the Trinity, the unity of the Trinity. So how do we, how can we be eager to maintain or to seek or to guard unity? Number one is understanding the definition of unity and understanding that it's working towards a common goal. Number two, second, by understanding the how of unity or the way to unity. Once again, in this passage, we arrive to this, this word that has surfaced several times in Ephesians so far, and it's the word but, okay? It, it is a word that, as we've seen in previous chapters, that signifies something important. In fact, it's a word that you know what is about to follow is counterintuitive, that it's not what you expect to follow. It's verse seven, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. You would expect, as we move into the how of unity, you would expect Paul to say, to achieve unity, you must work towards uniformity. Right? If you want unity, you have to work towards uniformity. And Paul says in verse 7, no, no, the way to unity is actually diversity. The way to unity is actually diversity. He says, Christ has gifted you in a very unique way. In fact, verse 8 is a quote from Psalm 68. And Psalm 68 is a description of how God descended to rescue his people out of Egypt, crossed them through the Red Sea, and eventually to ascend to Mount Zion, which was the temple for God to ascend to his throne with his people following. Paul is quoting that because Paul is saying, Jesus is the greater fulfillment of that, that Jesus, verse nine, descended in his incarnation to rescue humanity and then ascended to the throne next to the Father. And in ancient times, when a, when a king would conquer another nation or another king, when he would conquer, he would take the treasure and the plunder from the other nations or the nation he conquered, and he would give it out in his victory parade. He would give it to his people as gifts. And that's the imagery that we see here, is that Christ, one, was victorious, defeated death, sin, the devil, and on his victory parade of sorts, 
Christ ascending to his throne as king says, I have gifts and I'm gonna give them to my people so they can finish off my mission. That's what's happening here. Is that Christ is giving us gifts. Now, what are those gifts? Verse 11. In verse 11, we see he's speaking of the gift of church leaders and pastors. He says, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. And that those pastors and church leaders are to equip the people, the saints, to do the work of ministry. And so how, this is how it flows. Jesus Christ is the capital T teacher. He equips pastors, church leaders to teach and to equip the people to teach. Jesus Christ is the capital S shepherd. He equips church leaders, pastors, elders to shepherd the people and to equip the body to shepherd one another. That's, that's how it works. Why is diversity so critical to unity? Think about it. Imagine if all we had were evangelists. What if the church was only evangelists? Right? Who, who would nurture and disciple and take new believers deeper? Or imagine if, if, if the church were, were only shepherds. Who would go outside the sheep pen and, and find lost sheep and bring new ones in? If everyone were apostles, you know, that, that word apostles means those that start new works. Church planters are, or in, in the book of Acts, right? Paul served as an apostle. He'd start a new work and he'd leave. If everyone were apostles, right, who would stay behind and, and nurture a small and growing church into maturity, right? There's a diversity of gifts. Diversity is actually the way to unity. But diversity is also a threat to unity. Why? Verse two. Verse two, after in verse one, he says, walk in a manner worthy to which you're called. Verse two, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. You know, the diversity of gifts can produce pride. It can produce envy. It can produce a lack of bearing with one another in love. Take, for example, let's say you're a gifted administrator. You're gifted in administration. Isn't it easy to get frustrated at somebody who isn't a gifted administrator, who actually makes a mess of things administratively? You can get frustrated at that person that can't organize anything, right? Or imagine if you're, if you're a gifted teacher, isn't it easy if you're a gifted teacher to become really prideful and feel superior to those that don't quite teach as well as you? Or if you're a gifted shepherd, can't you become jealous of the person that wins people to Christ? Person that evangelizes well, that can mix it up with non-believers really easily? You can become jealous of that. See, the reality is the differences that are that are prescribed by God, gifted by Jesus with great intention, those differences that are supposed to be about growth of the body can become fuel for your insecurity. And verse seven makes it clear. First of all, they're gifts. You didn't work for it, you didn't earn it. However, God's gifted you. And number two, they're gifts from Christ with great purpose. Great purpose and great wisdom. You know, I, 
I'll share this as a hypothetical. It's not necessarily hypothetical. Imagine uh, putting a, a puzzle together with a small child, okay? You've got this jigsaw puzzle and you have all the pieces and, and the child picks up that, that piece and, and you see exactly where it needs to go. But this child takes it and starts to try to jam it into this spot where he's convinced it needs to go. And he's pressing and he's pressing. And, and all the while you're saying, it goes over there, it goes over there. No, it goes here. Pressing, pressing, pressing until what happens? That the piece bends or it breaks or it rips. See, that, that piece of the puzzle had a place where it belonged. But as he tries to force it, right, to a place where it doesn't belong, it fractures the puzzle. When you lust after someone else's gifts, when you grow envious or, or, or when you get prideful of your own gifts, or when you get frustrated with somebody because they just can't do it like you can. When, you, when that starts to happen, happen, it fractures the body. And in essence, what you're saying is, Jesus, I don't like how you gifted me. Or Jesus, I don't like how you gifted that other person. And Jesus, I know how this puzzle works better than you do. So will you let me figure it out? That's, that's what we do. Diversity is the way to unity. Finally, how, do we, how can we be eager to seek unity? First, by understanding the what of unity, the source, the definition of it. Second, the how, that the way to unity is actually through diversity. And then number three, by understanding the why of unity, the goal of unity. Look at verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, or literally that means a full-grown man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, listen, so that, so that we may no longer be children. You see, the goal of unity is spiritual maturity. That's the goal. And the reality is that when you come to trust Christ, or when you're, the life of the Trinity is birthed into you, the life of God is birthed into you, you are not born as a full-grown adult. The scriptures say when that happens, as glorious as it is, you're born as a spiritual baby. 1 Peter 2.2, 2, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. Now notice here, the apostle Paul, the author of most of the New Testament is throwing himself into this category that we are spiritual babies. And that's not judgment. That is saying that's what we're birthed into. We're born as spiritual babies. Now, here's the question. What are the marks of immaturity or of being a spiritual baby? And then therefore, conversely, we're gonna see what the marks of maturity are. Look at verse 14. So that we may no longer be children. Here's what it means to be a, a spiritual child or a spiritual baby tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Now, three marks of immaturity we see in verse 14. Number one, the first mark is no discernment. That a, a spiritual baby is carried about by every wind of doctrine. Meaning that a, a spiritual baby can't discern good teaching from bad teaching. 
doesn't have a handle of the truth of scriptures to be able to discern, like a real baby. Hey, a real baby cannot discern between good food, bad food, or poison. Real baby can't discern that. In the same way, a spiritual baby is one that just can't discern between good teaching, between bad teaching. So, so maturity is discernment, growing in discernment. Right? Second mark of immaturity is a lack of steadiness. Lack of steadiness. Where do we get that? Well, spiritual baby is tossed to and fro by the waves. Now, just think of that imagery, tossed to and fro by the waves. It's, it's someone who rides the wave of emotion and circumstance. It's, it's a person that maybe gets really convicted about something and then fails to follow through. It's, it's someone that is just up and down, up and down, up and down. It, it's similar to a real baby, right? A real baby has a short tension span, right? In fact, what do you have to do to keep a real baby engaged? You've got to put some sort of bright, flashing, noising toy in front of them. And that gets them for what? Maybe 10 seconds, okay? So maturity is, is growing in this long obedience in the same direction. Maturity is a faith that's not rocked up and down by emotions and circumstances. Third mark of immaturity is selfishness, that a spiritual baby is incredibly selfish. Now, where do we get this from out of verse 14? Well, look at the end there. It says, by human cunning and by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Paul is using wording there that he uses elsewhere to describe the devil. And specifically, that wording of craftiness and trickery takes us back to Genesis 3 in the garden when Satan tempted Adam and Eve. What did Satan appeal to with Adam and Eve? He basically said this. If you want to be happy, then you need to think for yourself because God surely isn't. He's not thinking for you. He doesn't have your best interests in mind. Right? If, if you want to be happy, you need to think for yourself. You need to be captain of your own ship. Spiritual babies are, are always thinking about themselves, always conscious of themselves, always wondering how they look around others, always questioning, always feeling slighted. That There's just this, this a self-absorption, like a real baby. Right? Real babies, they... They want what they want. They want it when they want it. You have to teach them to share their toys. They don't do that naturally. Same with spiritual babies. There's an incredible self-absorption. So what's maturity? It's growing in other-centeredness. It's growing in other-centeredness. So if, if there are varying degrees of spiritual baby, and listen, we're all in that pot, okay? We are all spiritual babies to varying degrees. Then how do we get out of it? How do we get out of it and grow in maturity to Christ? Verse 15, speaking the truth in love. Verse 16, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. Listen to this. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. What do we learn there? You do not grow in spiritual maturity by yourself. 
The only way that you're gonna grow from spiritual baby to mature in Christ, and that's a long process, but the only way you're gonna grow is if you are deeply involved in the life of the church, the body of Christ, if you are deeply involved in the life of other believers. If you're an undisciplined person, I mean, as I read those lists of spiritual immaturity, those three marks in verse 14, every one of us should have said, yeah, that's me. Or that's where I really tend towards. If you're an undisciplined person, you mature in discipline by being around other people who love Jesus who are disciplined. Uh, If you're an impatient person, you grow in patience by being around uh, other people, other believers who are patient. If you're a merciless person, you mature in mercy by being around other believers who are full of mercy. You will not grow in maturity into Christ unless you are plunged into a tight and close community of people who love Jesus, which means you can't just drop in on church once a week. That church is not a one-time event. That's part of it. But this close, tight-knit community is where you're gonna grow in maturity in Christ. I'll close with a sports illustration. Uh, It's appropriate because my favorite NBA basketball team is in the playoffs right now, the Miami Heat. Their coach, Eric Spolstra, okay, head coach, has been with the Miami Heat since 1995. And now, if you're not a sports fan, just go with me here. It's gonna come together, okay? I'm having a lot of fun up here. 1995, okay? He started in the Miami Heat organization as a video coordinator. Now, that's a fancy title. Let me tell you what that means, that he was the do boy. He would cut and splice uh, uh, video, probably stayed up all night long doing it, Uh, He would get other coaches coffee. He was the the running boy in 1995. Two years later, he gets promoted as an assistant coach slash video coordinator. Two years later, he got promoted, served as an assistant coach, coach slash advanced scout. Two years later, assistant coach slash director of scouting Seven years later, head coach of the Miami Heat. Three years later, NBA championship. Now, how did Eric Spolstra mature and grow into a NBA championship head coach? You say, it was LeBron James. No, no, he's a good coach. He's a good coach. How'd that happen? Well, he sat down for weeks at a time with a big manual that said how to become an NBA successful NBA coach, and he read it from cover to cover, and boom, he was a head coach, right? No, 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 for 20 years. Guess who he was around? Pat Riley, legendary NBA coach, learning from him. He was around great players. (laughs) He was around other very good coaches that went on to become head coaches. In other words, he was plunged into a great organization and a community where he learned and where he caught more than he was taught. You wanna grow in maturity in Christ, then you too need to plunge yourself into a tight and close 
community of people that love Jesus where you will be, you'll catch, you'll catch more than you're taught. Oh, you'll be taught. That's important. That's good. That's what I'm doing now. But you'll catch. You'll see a disciplined person, a patient person, a merciful person. You'll grow. You say, why do we put such an emphasis on community groups at Christ Church East? Why? This is it. This is it. If you're not in a community group, I, I encourage you strongly to join one. We're about to go on break for the summer, for June and July, to give our leaders and the groups breaks, but we're going to start back up in August. I encourage you to plunge into one of those where you can grow into maturity. If you're in one already, may your vision for this be renewed, that you're in this tight group, in this community, so that you can grow in maturity in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, would you forgive us for our individual, our individualistic mindset that we view Christianity through? Would you help us to see, coming out of this passage and all over the scripture, this deep need for your people to be with each other as one, learning, growing into maturity in Christ, that when each of us, according to how we're gifted, is, is working properly, that the body grows together, that it builds itself up in love. Father, here in the West, we are, we are swimming upstream with this idea of community and this idea of the body of Christ and working together for a greater purpose and goal, your transcendent mission. Would you, would you change our thinking? Would you help us to, to think counterculturally? And Father, we, we confess, we're, we are spiritual babies. That's what we were birthed into. But we confess, we don't want to stay there. That we do want to grow in maturity into Christ. And Jesus, we thank you that you are the king. That you came and rescued us. And that you ascended to your father's right hand on high and that you gave us gifts of grace to finish off your mission. It's the greatest story ever told, and we want to be wrapped up in it. And so would you, as we close in worship, capture our hearts to this greater mission. In Jesus' name, amen.